The government's busy mapping out what the defence force will be doing for the next 25 years. A white paper is about to be released, which will define where troops might be expected to be sent and what equipment they'll need. After a decade of non-stop overseas deployments and mercy missions in the Pacific, Gareth Thomas in this Radio New Zealand Insight looks at what lies ahead for the military. I'm on board the Canterbury, the Navy's innocuous-sounding sea-lift and amphibious support vessel. With its cavernous cargo area, it looks like a ferry, and today it may as well be, as it crosses the white-capped Cook Strait from Picton to Wellington. They're returning from a Dock Island resupply run. On the deck, they're firing up the engines of the ship's Sea Sprite helicopter. Up on the bridge at the ship's control and command centre, some of the crew are glued to a giant electronic dashboard of buttons and screens to help guide the ship out to sea. Old hands with rows of gold stripes on their sleeves work alongside Navy newcomers. I'm Midshipman Wilson. I joined the Navy straight out of high school because I wanted a career and not just a job. And I wanted to travel the world and get paid to do it. At 19, Matthew Wilson is the fresh face of the Navy, a junior officer who takes salutes from sailors twice his age. Wearing trademark shiny military shoes and a crisp uniform, he tells me he could easily spend the next couple of decades at sea. 20 years' time, I hope to be driving my own frigate. It's my goal. Also looking to the future is the Defence Minister. Wayne Maps ordered what he calls a deep review of defence. The last time there was an assessment like this was in the late 90s. In the last decade, the military deployment tempo has been high. Missions to East Timor, Afghanistan, the Solomons, frigates to the Arabian Gulf and multiple humanitarian duties. The minister says the world's changing rapidly and the Army, Navy and Air Force need to keep up. Clearly uh, our region is changing, and by that I mean the Asia-Pacific. The major change is, of course, China becoming a much more significant economic power, uh, and as a consequence of that, uh, seeking to have a greater influence within the region. So what's likely to be in the white paper? Well, those details are in files marked top secret for now. But there are some clues. Simon Murdoch is part of a hand-picked panel which is contributing to the Ministry of Defence-led review. Once head of the Prime Minister's Department and most recently Chief of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and Trade, he thinks military planners need to look beyond the Pacific. I think it's not going to be enough for future governments, this government and future governments, to invest in a defence force which is only capable of carrying out a role in Oceania, in other words, in our near neighbourhood. I think we're going to have to recognise that there's a rising demand for security cooperation in East Asia, by which I mean Northeast Asia and Southeast Asia, Simon Murdoch says New Zealand won't want to be left out of the group of countries wishing to keep Asia secure. Today we have so many economic and trade interdependencies with that part of the world that our future governments, I feel, are almost certain to need and want to present New Zealand as a security partner 
in whatever efforts are being made to keep the peace in that wider region. Someone who's tuned to Simon Murdoch's way of thinking is Professor Hugh White. He knows all about defence white papers. He wrote one for the Australian government in 2000. Now an academic at the Australian National University, he says Wellington will need to factor Asia into its defence strategy. The Asia-Pacific itself is in a very complex moment in its history, very fluid. There is a significant risk that Asia will become significantly more contested than it has been for the last few decades and that it will make much greater demands on people's armed forces if they're going to try and use their armed forces to influence that. And I think one of the big choices for New Zealand is to what extent that function should play into New Zealand's thinking about the kind of forces it needs in future. China is never far from the thoughts of academics who watch developments in Asia. After all, increasing influence, sheer size and much-talked-about military spending are facts hard to ignore. Does New Zealand think Beijing's growing power could make it a threat or an aggressor in the future? Neither, says the Defence Minister, who characterises Sino-New Zealand relations as being in very good shape. But what about Beijing's assessment of New Zealand's defence policy? Chinese-born and educated academic Dr Yan Yang researches Asian security and China's foreign relations at Auckland University. He's also been involved in the initial stages of the Defence Review, contributing his views on Asia. Dr Yang says in China's eyes, New Zealand is doing better than Australia in its defence strategy. China doesn't see New Zealand as any particular threat. Well, New Zealand has done very well in that sense. When China looks at Australia, uh, I would say China may still have some kind of concerns because Australia is very close to the United States. It's an ally of the United States. And look at history, look at past um, few decades, you'll find Australia has moved much closer to East Asia economically. But in terms of military, in terms of security, Australia has been staying very close to the United States. Wayne Mapp wants to cultivate New Zealand's budding military ties with China. We do have a defence relationship with the People's Republic. It's uh, you know, nascent at the moment. It's a low-key relationship, but we are looking to develop it in an appropriate way. It's worth noting that China has only recently got into uh, sort of the global peacekeeping operations. You've seen them in the anti-piracy patrols, you've seen them in Sudan and so forth. The Defence Minister says the world should expect to see more of China's defence forces. One of the things I get a sense of is that China's more outward-looking policy uh, is certainly in the, the near term going to be expressed through peacekeeping. And I guess what that also means is that China will expect its views of the world to be taken into, into a greater account. Defence Review contributor Simon Murdoch believes in the future New Zealand forces should be making new military friends but shouldn't turn its back on Australia. I do think we need to look at a future in which we are exercising our forces for interoperability purposes with a wider range of countries. And I think some of those countries are going to be the countries of wider East Asia. And of course, um, in saying that, I don't overlook for a minute our fundamental defence relationship with Australia, whose interests are not dissimilar from ours in the preservation of peace and harmony and prosperity in that wider region. 
One way the Defence Force has a presence and increasing relevance in Asia is through training exercises, particularly with Singapore and Malaysia, through what's called the Five Power Defence Arrangements. Dr Jan Yang from Auckland University says New Zealand is capable of being more than a peace partner with China. He thinks New Zealand is diplomatically agile enough to play peace broker. There is still hostility and distrust in East Asia, particularly in Northeast Asia, between China and Japan and North Korea there, and even South Korea and Japan, still history can be an issue. So it's a very complicated situation in Northeast Asia. While we have such a big stake in Northeast Asia, therefore we need to pay more attention to the region. You say pay more attention. Yeah, pay more attention means that we have to watch what's happening in Northeast Asia, what what we can contribute. To the stability of Northeast Asia, and how do we contribute to that For, stability? Yeah, that's a good point. New Zealand is a very small country. However, New Zealand, because New Zealand is small, is not threatening, and therefore it can play a, con- a constructive role because New Zealand can have the trust of these rivaling parties, rivaling countries. So, in that sense, we can play a positive role by being able to somehow. Uh, being a bridge between different parties, it's never been realistic for New Zealand to protect itself, and has for decades worked on the assumption that protection will come through partnership. While Wellington is working on collaboration, New Zealand's nearest ally has rushed off to the military supermarket. Australia is now embarking on a multi-billion-dollar spending spree for new fighter jets, frigates, and submarines. Canberra's defence white paper doesn't explicitly say China is a threat, but it does point out that as China. As economic power grows, so will the size of its military. The government here is comfortable with Australia having a different defence outlook on Asia. Wayne Mapp says the two countries are just not in the same league. Well, Australia is a middle power,、uh, 20 million people,、uh, a large landmass,、uh, 3 million square miles, and as such. Wants to play a significant role within the Asia Pacific region, commensurate with that、uh, size, both in terms of population, land area, and economy. And so, their、uh, growth of their defence force, in essence, reflects that particular aspect of Australian foreign policy. In the Asia region, the flashpoints between North and South Korea grab the world's attention. We are going to start this morning with the news that is ratcheting up tensions in one of the most volatile neighborhoods in the world. South Korea saying now it can prove that North Korea sank one of its warships, killing 40. When a South Korean Navy ship sank near the border with North Korea in March, tension dramatically increased on the peninsula. An international investigation led by the U.S., Australia, Britain, and Sweden concluded the warship was torpedoed by a North Korean submarine. A conclusion rejected by Pyongyang. Despite friction since the end of the Korean War, observers believe the aggression won't escalate into full-scale conflict involving China. Auckland University's Dr. Jian Yang explains why. There is always possibility for a conflict, for a war. No one can exclude that possibility. But when I look at the Korean Peninsula, 
I do not see really a major war there. The reason here is that um, well, North Korea, if they launch attack against South Korea, it would be suicidal. It, North Korea, there was no hope. There's no hope for North Korea to win a conflict with South Korea, and China will not necessarily just support North Korea on any conditions. Under any conditions, no, China will be very realistic. The Defence Minister Wayne Mapp reads the Korean situation in a similar way. If you to put it in a, an extremist, is there likely to be war between North Korea and South Korea? The answer is no. I don't think there is. Is there likely to be a requirement for vigilance? Well, the answer is yes, there is. And uh, until the North Korean regime moderates its behaviour, there will need to be continuing vigilance there. Wayne Mapp says there's every possibility the tense situation could be resolved by changes within North Korea. Most states don't secure their protection by having armies standing sort of sort of apart as a means of keeping the peace. Most nations find other ways to keep the peace between them. We would actually like to see、uh, North Korea becoming a more normal state. How can that be achieved? Well, I think it'll take negotiation and、uh, a progressive opening up. That,、uh, but that's not going to be easy to achieve. I wouldn't、uh, want to be. No, I, I mean, re- you've got to be realistic about that. That's a, a medium to long-term project, I suspect. Although you can't rule out a sudden collapse, as occurred with、uh, Eastern Europe. One question for Wellington would be: If the two Koreas went to war, America would be on the side of the South. What would New Zealand do? Take sides or play peacemaker? This is a question not easily answered at the moment, with geopolitics evolving. While New Zealand's involvement in East Asia is in the planning stage, there are significant existing overseas deployments, commitments in the Pacific, and responsibilities at home. And it's at home where a lot of the defence force's day-to-day operations go on, including fisheries patrols and Orion search and rescue. Back on the logistics ship, the Canterbury, the quayside at Picton is buzzing with trucks, tractors, and cranes. The vessel has just returned from a Department of Conservation resupply mission to Maud and Stevens Islands in the Marlborough Sounds. This sort of non-combat task has become a core role of the military. On the dock, I meet Mike Avis, who looks like he's been in the bush for a fortnight. In fact, the dock area manager has been to a string of islands, courtesy of the Royal New Zealand Navy. A few years ago, he would have had to hire commercial boats and helicopters, but now the Navy's on hand. Oh, in the last couple of days, we've been、um, working with the combined、um, forces here on the.、Uh, Canterbury, multi-role vessel ship Canterbury, and、um, we've been、uh, servicing, doing a, a bulk annual service lift onto Stevens Island, so which involves probably about fifteen、um, tons worth of goods transferred from the, the ship to the island, and we also did a delivery onto Maud Island of a big sewerage system to upgrade the sewerage system on that island, and、uh, we're also able to do a clean up of a. Some、um, old rubbish sites on Brother, North Brother, as well. So it's been very, very busy couple of days. And what's it like working with the Navy?、Oh, it's fantastic, actually. Yeah, I, I didn't know what to expect.、Uh, a big ship like this, and, and the systems and procedures that go with it. But、um, it was、uh, a real pleasure, and they're very, very、um, professional people to deal with. So, is this a new thing now, Doc, working with the Navy? It is relatively new, and、uh, it's it's like.、Um, 
uh, government agencies and making the best use of um, of the government's um, capacity, I suppose. And we have all these vehicles and, and vessels and so on that, that are obviously designed for a particular uh, role. Uh, and uh, at times they can they can do that for us. And it's it's um, yeah, I would like to do it more for sure. Okay, the plan will be let go of lines, and then I'll just bring her a, uh, bring her a stand. Canterbury's commander Jim Gilmore tells me the government job sheet is getting longer. In my experience uh, now coming up to two years in command, the amount of operations that we're conducting that are in support of other government agencies is, is very high. I can give you an example that we returned from Tuvalu uh, literally three weeks ago in which we were carrying out an MFAT, New Zealand aid-sponsored mission to uh, the islands of Tuvalu. Uh, we've been involved in resupply rail island very regularly and I must say that even when we're not on a Department of Fisheries task around New Zealand we are forever patrolling. The Canterbury came as part of a recently delivered package called the Project Protector Fleet. All seven ships are now in service but not before delivery delays and a run of problems ranging from engine failure to losing an inflatable launch at sea. Buying the right kit is a big decision for military planners. Get it wrong and it won't stay out of the news for long. I'm sitting inside one of the Army's labs. I feel extremely safe in here. It's got really thick armoured plating which can repel machine gun fire. If ever there was a poor piece of equipment purchasing, this was it, the light armoured vehicle. As the Auditor General found, the problem was the Army decided it didn't need this type of equipment for the battlefield, but commanders didn't run the change of plan past Cabinet before it was too late. The Army's now stuck with 105 of these vehicles, and many of them are tucked away in deep storage. So what is expected to be on the military's wish list this time? Robin Johansson was head of acquisitions at the Ministry of Defence for 10 years. He describes New Zealand's military hardware as a Swiss army knife, capable of doing different jobs. But he says the government needs to continue to buy wisely for New Zealand's needs. The government clearly needs to strike a balance where it can do everything from humanitarian aid, disaster relief, through to, at the top end, a contribution to war fighting. And I think that's the role of a responsible government. And I think put all your eggs in one basket or the other is not to serve the public well. Two frigates enough? That's a question which the White Paper needs to answer. Um, no doubt they've contemplated that. They certainly have been enough in the last several years, although they've been run very hard. There's an argument that says that if you had more capability, in other words, another ship, then it would be easier to deal with demands in times where one of those ships has to undergo a refit, for example. The government's already said it's keen to get new planes for its Air Force fleet, smaller aircraft that are capable of surveillance and island hopping around the Pacific. So how is money found for those sorts of expensive projects? The government's answer? Another review. A value-for-money exercise is being carried out by a former telecom chief executive, Rod Dean. Former defence buyer Robin Johansson says essentially Dr Dean's been asked to find fat in the system to free up money for the war chest. Without knowing what's actually going on in the white paper, if I look at what's been happening, what we've seen relatively late in the evolution of this, the appointment of Rod Dean to do a value-for-money exercise, uh, that suggests to me that the, the politicians have had a look at the capability that's required and said, hmm, this presents a problem in terms of how we fund it. So they've started an exercise to look at how they might fund that 
by making efficiencies elsewhere in defence. Originally, the government set out to search for $50 million worth of savings, but the government has told Radio New Zealand it's likely to be closer to double that. And the military needs every cent it can get. Just recently, the cost to upgrade the Hercules transporter aircraft fleet increased by $10 million, pushing it up to over a quarter of a million dollars. What about any cuts to defence spending? When it comes to combat kit, the message from the Defence Minister Wayne Mapp is don't expect any immediate spending spikes or dips. I would say essentially sustain, maintain and at the time where core capabilities have to be replaced that you've actually got the ability to do that. So for instance you have to be able to replace the uh, C-130 transport fleet in about 10 years. Well we've got to find an economic pathway in the Defence Review to show that that can be done. Similarly with the Orions which are maybe uh, 3 to 5 years after that and then ultimately the Anzac frigates in sort of 25 to 2030 they will need to be replaced. I see my responsibility in the Defence Review to show a clear and coherent pathway to replace the core capabilities. Of course, the armed forces can't wait for white papers to come along every 10 years or so to order critical equipment. Although New Zealand has troops in Afghanistan, the military's reluctant to send air support because the old Iroquois helicopters it's been using since the 60s might not cope with the conditions. In 2006, $700 million worth of new helicopters were ordered. This grunty sound is an Iroquois at a Hagia airbase. It's something that'll soon be history as the Air Force prepares to get its hands on brand new helicopters from Europe. In charge of the Iroquois is Wing Commander Russell Marden. An aircraft like the Iroquois um, would probably be quite limited in the role it could perform in Afghanistan simply because of the performance of it. And that's one of the reasons that we are getting um, the NH-90 because its performance will allow it to operate in an environment like that, both from, from the point of view of the high altitude and the temperatures, but also because of the threats that they'll encounter. So they will have far more performance to lift um, much bigger loads and, and greater um, number of troops in any one load, but they will also have self-protection systems, much better battlefield survivability. So they could deploy to Afghanistan, where at the moment you probably wouldn't take this force there. On the edge of the airbase, just off the highway, it's one big building site. Contractors are working on the Defence Force's biggest and most expensive construction since World War II. I'm Squadron Leader Sean Sexton and I'm standing at the moment in the new purpose-built hangar facility at RNZAF Base Ohakia, which has been designed to accommodate those new helicopters. The Iroquois, as great as it is, has come to the end of its life. It uh, doesn't perhaps deliver the number of soldiers into the battlefield or the uh, support to search and rescue operations or the support to disaster relief that the new helicopters are capable of doing. Uh, the new helicopters can move more people, they can lift more equipment, they can travel further, they can go faster and so it was time to take a step up. In terms of when you get these new helicopters, when is that happening? Uh, the delivery of the new helicopters is the responsibility of the Ministry of Defence. We're working on some timelines that they're advising us early uh, next year, early mid-next year, and then it's up to us to what we call introduce them to service, and that's a task which takes time. We have to build up the capability. You don't just have a piece of equipment 
and then suddenly take it off to a disaster relief scenario in the South Pacific. Delivery and training times have slipped back since the contract was signed. The last of the helicopters is scheduled to be delivered in early 2012. Problems with gear have plagued the Defence Force. Another challenge is attracting and holding on to personnel. Mary, this is childish. What, you think building a bivouac is childish, Yeah, I think so. This is what we used to do in the New Zealand Army. Were you in the Army? Yeah. Remember I showed you my New Zealand Army uniform, the green T-shirt and the green shorts? Oh, I thought that was your underwear. No, all the New Zealand Army soldiers wore them. This comedy skit from Flight of the Concords is based on fact. Rhys Darby did in fact join the Army, although he soon left. The Defence Force has been battling recruitment and retention problems for years. It's a perennial issue which it doesn't seem to be able to solve. This is detrimental to operations. The Navy has remarked it doesn't have enough sailors to fill its fleet at the same time. But right now, the recruiters appear to have hit a sweet spot. The tough job market has meant the military has become more attractive to young people. Let's look at those uh, run flats down to first pillar this afternoon. Not a problem, sir. Should be done quite soon. Good stuff, mate. At Linton Army Camp, Lieutenant Rupert Randall is in charge of all the tyres on trucks and armoured vehicles. He won a place on a defence scheme that gave him a degree, course fees and a commission. It's a deal that locks him into the army for four years. At the moment, the whole lot of doors have just opened up and each door opens up another door. And, um, for instance... Uh, equipment procurement and capability and uh, research and development. There's a door that's opened up recently and um, I've become really interested in that. So it's just endless. Every two years you get posted to a new job or specification and with that you find its own little perks and own interests. And the 22-year-old officer is keenly watching foreign trends. Where we're going to be, who knows, with the ever-changing world that we're in. Bosnia can pop up like it did in the 90s. We're in Somalia in the 90s. Who knows where it's going to be next, or if there is going to be a next place. On the other side of Linton Army Camp, it's target practice time. This is live firing by soldiers on pre-deployment training, meaning they're sharpening up their aim before being sent perhaps overseas to Afghanistan, East Timor or the Solomon Islands. And the rotation of troops is never-ending. Or is it? The government's already said it wants to pull the SAS out of Afghanistan next year and reduce the number of personnel committed to the provincial reconstruction team. So where will the next battleground be? No one I spoke to for this programme was prepared to stick a pin in the map and identify a country. But for a broader view, one of the contributors to the Defence Review, Simon Murdoch, maintains Asia is the region to watch. It's not to be taken for granted that that region will necessarily uh, or automatically remain as tranquil, relatively speaking, in the next 30 years, 40 years, as it has been in the last 30 since the end of the Vietnam War. Relatively speaking, it's been an area of greater prosperity and greater tranquility than almost any other in the world, and we benefited enormously from that. The tough challenge now for the government is not so much the equipment and personnel, but the need to identify the larger strategic shifts in Asia, which are still not settled. What Wayne Mapp can say with certainty is New Zealand is still prepared to send its forces to broken countries, but only for United Nations-led missions.
I think the, the threats will remain failing states for the foreseeable future. That's what our viewpoint is. I mean, it is conceivable that in the next little while, say three to five years, we might actually have slightly less uh, commitments than we've had in the last decade, but you sure couldn't count on it. Which direction the Defence Force will be sent over the coming 25 years will be revealed by the government next month. That Radio New Zealand Insight programme was written and presented by Gareth Thomas. It was produced by Sue Ingram and technical production was by Leanne Smith.